Welcome to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'd like to give a special welcome. We have many people around the globe today watching our live webcast, and we're happy to have them. And I'd like to give a very special big welcome to live watch parties that we have at the U.S. Embassy, both in Abuja, Nigeria, as well as Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. You can see them and the tiny screen over there, um, but we'll be getting questions from, we can wave to them if they're watching us. Um, we will be getting questions um, from them as well, so this is an exciting thing that we're exper experimenting with today. So good morning to all of you here in Washington, D.C., but of course, good afternoon to our friends in Africa. My name is Kimberly Flowers, and I'm the director of the Global Food Security Project here at CSIS. Um, I'm very excited about this opportunity today, especially because it's a partnership between CropLife International as well as the U.S. State Department. Um, would not be possible without them. This was State Department's idea, and I said, yes, let's do it. And I went to CropLife and said, join us. They said, okay. Um, this is also possible, of course, with the generous sponsorship that we have for our general program from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. You know, when we think of biotechnology, immediately that conjures up some emotional, often controversial debates around GMO. Um, we're not here necessarily today to, to convince you my role is not to, to have you take a new position. Um, whether you're a scientist or a hunger activist or an agronomist or a, a diplomat, um, everyone has a strong opinion on this. But as you're going to learn from our experts today, biotechnology is much broader than that. My hope is that just we have an informed debate on the current context and identify and look at the barriers to success and hopefully offer some thoughts on the future role of plant biotechnology in Africa. You're going to hear from experts about the contributions and the challenges of genetic engineering and how that can contribute to food security. That means looking and unpacking policies and perceptions and talking through concrete recommendations on how biotechnology and biotech crops can be better utilized as one of many tools to reduce the number of hungry people in the world. Before I introduce our first presenter, I just want to point out that CSIS has actually produced several research papers on this topic over the years, since 2010, long before my time here, particularly looking in at East Africa. So and I, as I was preparing for this event, I, I looked back at a report um, from 2013 called Pathways to Productivity. And that, that report looked specifically, again, on East Africa, but looked at the opinions of GM products, the status of biosafety and regulatory structures, looked at science and research capacity, and also looked at the potential of, of how this could impact smallholder livelihoods. And I just want to point out, as I was reading through it, there were three things that stood out to me that I wanted to share with you as part of their observations and recommendations that I think obviously still stand today and can help inform our discussion. One is that there really needs to be sustained investments in broader agricultural systems. So that's about you know, stronger ag systems. That's about um, you know, reliable seed systems and well-funded research and development. Number two is that politics and personalities have a big role to play. We know this. Political will and domestic political structures impact regulations, research, development, adoption, and commercialization. We also know that national policies can really shape regional regulations. 
Um, the third thing that, that, that I liked that the report pointed out was that there are big communication gaps. Um, this we talked about a lot this morning at a breakfast roundtable we had, but you know, debates around this are often emotional and not based on scientific evidence, and there's a great need for scientists to better communicate with politicians and with the public to address fears and to increase understanding of all new technologies. I am far from an expert on this topic. I'm not a scientist, which is why I bring wonderful people from the field to Washington, D.C., since they came a long way, but it's easier to bring them here and help better inform us. And to start, we're going to talk with Dr. Sylvester Oike, who traveled all the way from Kenya to join us. Our Nigerian watch party should know he's also Nigerian. Um, Sylvester has more than three decades of experience in this field. Um, he's currently with the African Agricultural Technology Foundation, which links the needs of resource-poor farmers, resource farmers with technological solutions to improve productivity. Um, he's a scientist, he's passionate about this, and we are fortunate to learn from him about the current context on the African continent. Sylvester? Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, good afternoon, my colleagues in uh, East Africa, or Eastern Africa, Ethiopia, and my brothers and sisters in Nigeria. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. It's good to be here. Thank you for the opportunity to come in and share our, our experience in, um, in Africa. I will talk about the potential of biotech in addressing food security in Africa, some of the experiences we have. Uh, some will say, I'm passionate. Yes, I'm passionate. I'm passionate about this technology because I feel this technology will make a difference in Africa from what uh, we've seen. So I'm going to address this topic, uh, looking at first, what is AATF, just the organization I work, what we do, the status of biotech in Africa, uh, the current uh, Changes that have taken place in recent time. Uh, the compelling product, I will give a case study of the project I coordinate called WEMA, Water Efficient Means for Africa. Some lessons that we have uh, in handling WEMA projects. We chat, I will try to chat some way forward, just some provoke you with some ideas of, for discussion, and then draw conclusion. So AATF is African Agricultural Technology Foundation. Our vision is to make Africa a food secure and a prosperous continent. And how do we do this? We do this by working with partners using public-private partnership model. We try to assess technological and non-technological solutions for our farmers to increase their productivity improve their food security, and strengthen agribusiness, all in the aim of creating wealth for our farmers. The cycle of poverty that has been existing in Africa, we want to contribute to breaking that cycle. Now, in, we talk of operating through public-private partnership. How do we do this? We do this by identifying technologies from whoever the technology holder is, 
be it whatever technology that you have there that will make a difference. We serve as broker with technology holder to negotiate on behalf of the farmers, the small-scale farmers who may not be able to pay for the technology, the technology fee. And when we do the negotiation, in most cases, we negotiate royalty-free. But in some cases, we have some projects that we negotiate with payment of royalty, but highly reduced payment to help the small-scale farmers. Then we go into product formulation. We work with national and international organizations to develop products and adapt them to our African environment. Then we deploy. If they are seed-based products, we deploy through the seed company by giving them license and telling them how they should use this technology. Now, what we also do is we make sure that as we develop this product, we deploy this product, there is compliance with the existing regulations. Be it the uh, regulation, be it the policy, we have to make sure we comply so that the products can get to the farmer. Making sure also that the product are steward or stewarded using the value chain and all the actors, the stakeholders are adequately trained. So in summary, what AATF does is to get technology that will help change the life of our farmers. If you have any technology out there that you think can make a difference, there is room to partner with AATF to get them to the farmers. But let me quickly go to the topic of the day, the, the, the status of biotechnology in Africa. Now, when you hear the word biotechnology, what quickly comes into your mind? Genetic enhanced modification, GM. But biotechnology is much, much, much broader than that. Tissue culture that is being used is biotechnology. Marker-assisted breeding, which we are using in the project I'm going to talk about, is biotechnology. But people just think it's just genetic engineering or genetic modification. In fact, those words, for me, I would prefer to say genetic enhancement. Because modification can connote something negative. But enhancement means increasing. Enhancement. But this is the one in literature. I don't have the, the permit to change that. So maybe we will have to get those who have permit to help us change that. But biotechnology has diverse applications in agriculture, in health, in environment, and in industry. I'm going to focus more on agriculture, but there are some parts of the world that prefer to use biotech for health. And I'm sure some of you know. If you are in Europe, you can spend any amount of money to buy biotech medicine to live healthy. But in Africa, what do we have? People are starving. They need the technology that will make a difference for agriculture. So these are diverse, but let me focus on, uh, on agriculture. If you look at that map there, we see biotech crops as the most adopted, fastest growing crops in the world. Since the release of they started in, 2000, in uh, 1996. We have seen 18 million farmers growing biotech in 28 countries in the world, with approximately 180 million being covered. But look at that map closely. Do you 
picture something there? Can you picture something there? That in this map of Africa, I hope this works. In Africa, you can see only three green spots there. That's Burkina in West Africa. We also have Sudan and South Africa. Those are the three countries. Now look up. Do you see something? That this map, as it is here, if you compare here and here, the color of this map is the same as the color of this map. There's a correlation there. I leave that for discussion. Now, quickly, we are seeing changes in the environment, mixed back there. If you see the green, those have, this technology that I'm talking about, the biotech aspect, is genetic enhanced crops. They are highly regulated. They need re the right regulation for us to promote. So you have to put in place the national uh, biosafety framework, and those countries in green in Africa are the countries that have that functional biosafety, uh, bi functional, uh, biosafety framework. Some of them in yellow have work in progress. They are not functional yet. Those in light green have functional, but they, it only allows them to test. They can't commercialize, unlike the ones in green. And then you see some countries there, two of them, red, those countries, they say, look, we have moratorium. We are not going to bring GM into our country. We leave it like that. But let's see what has happened recently. I showed you three countries initially in the global. But if you look at that picture, the deep green, there are now more than three countries. In the last few years, we have seen Nigeria has approved BT cotton, recent development. We are seeing Malawi has approved BT cotton, Bulga too. We are seeing Kenya has approved the Wema product BT maize, although with question mark, which we can look at later on. But these countries are involved in testing. They will contest, but these with deep green, they have laws that allow them to commercialize these products. And so there is hope rising. Now, GM crop, the investment so far can be put at around 0.5 billion US dollars. And there are several crops, more than seven of them involved. In most cases, when you hear GM, the thing, first crop that comes to your mind is maize and BT cotton. But there's more to it than that. There are a number of African crops, apart from maize. This maize is coming from the Wema project. We have cowpea. We have banana. We have rice. These four were assessed, the technology were assessed through AATF involvement. We have BT cotton. We have sorghum, African harvest is promoting that. We have also cassava. And there is potato, there is sweet potato also that I have not listed here. There's hope. Now let's look at the changes that have taken place most recently 
in Africa in the last two years. Why I think there is hope. Look at Ethiopia. Ethiopia, in some few years ago, had the strictest regulation. It was a no-go area. You would never want to do trials there. But my Ethiopian brothers, I'm sure you are listening to me. We are proud of you. We are proud of your country. And this is an example we want other African countries to adopt. In 2015, they amended their biosafety regulation. They got the BM, uh, uh, BT cotton trials ongoing, confined field trials. They wrote directly to the Gates Foundation. We want to be part of the WEMA project. We are appreciating what they are doing. We want to be in that family. And as I talk to you, a proposal is being reviewed at the Gates Foundation to bring in Ethiopia into WEMA family for the uh, product that I'm going to discuss more. This is what example of what it takes to have the willingness for a technology to transform the lives of the people. In Ghana, they are already conducting confined field trial on rice, on cotton, on cowpea rather. Cowpea is uh, the black eye bean. We can guess it is sold in the shops. Also on cotton. Kenya, there is heightened advocacy to lift ban on food imports. And this ban was placed in 2020, uh, 2012. Why? Because there was a study a French, by a French scientist that was reported in 2012 saying that GM crop causes cancer. And that research, the paper, the journal withdrew that paper from publication and apologized globally to the world for, for publishing such a study. Yet, because of that study, they placed a ban on GM. Even when it has been retracted, the ban is still in place, but efforts are being made to remove the ban. Also, Kenya recently, last year, approved the BT maze, uh, the, the BT maze from the Wema project, but the National Biosafety Authority gave condition. You have to go and get environmental impact assessment report or license from the National Environmental Management Authority before you can put materials into the last stage of certification. Without that stage being done by the government authority, varieties can never be released. So, and that's where we've been. That application has been there and is still pending approval since April 2016. Malawi also, good development happening. They've released environmental release of uh, approval has been given for BT cutting. They have varieties with the BT trade in that that they are testing for, environment, uh, for release to the public. And we hope that maybe next year those varieties will get to the level of the farmers for farmers to have a feel of what it takes to grow GM cotton. I move quickly. It's a busy slide, but uh, what's happening there in other countries that we are seeing? Mo Mozambique had also, at the time we started the Wema project, had no law or the law was not conducive, but they, we work with them. We, by 2015, they got regulation that allows for commercialization of GM crop. And last two months only, they planted the first GM crop in that country. There's hope. If any of you happens to get to southern Africa, just make effort to go to Malawi. You see the product on the farm on confined field trial, and they are performing well. 
Nigeria, I will leave uh, Modessa to talk more about that. Tanzania also has one of the strictest, uh, one of the strictest regulation. And through the Wema family, they have been able to amend it to allow for commercialization of products. And last year, they conducted, they, they, they only amended to allow for testing, not for commercialization, saying that if we make progress, if we see the value, the government authorities, if we see the value of this technology, then we can amend it to allow for commercialization. Guess what happened? Their first CFT on drought from the Wema project, they planted and there was serious drought. And you could see one variety among those being tested stood out. There was drought. This with the trade, DT trade, stood completely performing better than the non-converted version. And this guy so you mean, under this drought condition, you can have a crop like this? You say, yes. But, so why are we not giving this to the farmer? And they say, no, sorry, we can't give it to the farmer. This is a highly regulated technology. We have to have a law in place that will allow for commercialization. As I talk to you, efforts are being made to amend the law to allow for commercialization. So a compelling product can make a difference. In Uganda, I would say Uganda has had the highest number of confined field trials in Africa, if not in the whole world. But they can't commercialize a product. Reason, they don't have a law. So, but we are seeing a renewed effort by the government to have a law in place. So, and they have given themselves a target to have this law ready this year. Let's hope it works, because if it doesn't work, we will not be able to move with our products in the coming years. Now, let's look at what it takes in developing a compelling product, the case of the Wema project. First, the question, I've been talking about Wema. What is Wema? Wema simply means water-efficient maize for Africa. It's a PPP project that started in 2008 to develop and deploy royalty-free, African-drought-tolerant, and insect-pest-protected maize, what we put called, give, gave a name, climate-smart maize for small farmers. The aim is for, us to be, for farmers to be able to in, have increased yield stability, Protect and promote farmers' investment in adopting best management practices. That's a big word. But it simply means best agronomic practices. The use of seed, improved seed, the use of fertilizer. Because we notice that if a farmer plants maize and, does, and buys fertilizer, buys seed, and is lost to drought, that farmer next year, you cannot convince that farmer to buy the product. But if he can get some some level of yield, while the other farmers who are not using the improved varieties are losing, of course the farmer will want to invest. So, but our vision of success is that under moderate drought, the Wema varieties should give us yield of 20 to 35% over the yield of the varieties that were in the market commercially available in 20, uh, 2008 when this project started. We have to add base. Now, what does the family look like? The Wema family, these partners have been working on their own, but we said, yes, we know you've been doing the best working on your own. Let's come as a family and work together. Bring the best of what you have. So we have the National Agricultural 
research organizations in Kenya, in Uganda, in South Africa, in Tanzania, and in Mozambique partnering with us. They bring the best of their expertise, the best of their varieties. Of course, in any partnership you ask, what do I get from it? And they are getting training and knowledge of how to carry out such trials. We have CIMIT, which is the International Center for Wheat and Maize Improvement, headquartered in Mexico. They have offices in Africa. They are leaders in breeding for maize for adaptation to African environment. We are coordinating the projects. As year, we, we, we develop this partnership. We assess the technology. And then, of course, our private sector is Monsanto. This I will spend a little time to explain. Monsanto is part of this because they share the same vision as we do to make Africa prosperous and food secure. With that vision, sharing the same vision, we ask them, we know you have the drought trade, the cold shock protein, which you are testing. Can you bring it royalty-free for our African farmers? That was a big ask. But through negotiation, they agreed to give it to us royalty-free. They also gave us the BT gene, two of them, one for East Africa, one for uh, uh, South Africa. They brought in about 700 global germplasm and said, look, let's put it on the table so that we have a bigger pool for these partners to use in breeding. And not only that, they brought in their expertise. For the first time, we are learning what it takes to work with the private sector in developing technology. Without this partnership, I won't be sitting here to talk to you. And we are urging all those who have similar technology and have the same vision with us, let's work together and make Africa a prosperous continent. I think it's a bit dark, but those who can see, this is a crop on farmer's field. If you are a farmer and you apply fertilizer, you bought seed and it's lost like this, it's lost. This is a trial loss. Then people ask me, why maize? Why are you guys always talking of maize? Maize is such a food security crop that a third of our population in Africa depend on maize, especially in East and Southern Africa. If you are in a place like Kenya and you do not eat maize three days, of course, you will say you are starved because there's no food. To them, maize is food. You can see the volume of the amount eating, more than 100 kilograms per year per person. But then again, maize is such a sensitive series to drought that it could just completely devastate it, as you can see in those pictures there or up there. So if you want to get a food-secured continent, of course you have to address this problem. So in forming this partnership, we say let's bring options for our farmers. So the options we have for our farmers are different types. We have the conventionally bred product, which is the drought-tolerant maize that we started with, and we call them drought tego. Tego simply means shield. A maize that is shielded from drought is a Latin word. As I talk to you, 84, 94 of these climate smart tegos are available. In Kenya, for example, they are changing the lives of the farmers. Some farmers who have early adopters, we see them building new houses because of proceeds from this. If you want to learn more, just Google Wema commercialization. Wema commercialization, you can learn more. But let me focus on the transgenic aspect. 
So, uh, the transgenic aspect, this is the conventional. Yeah, so the transgenic aspect is, are these ones. Uh, they are called Taylor, which means double shield. You see a shield. Of course, these are available. Some of the trials, some result of the trials is this. We carried out these trials in two countries, Kenya and Uganda, and surprisingly, we are seeing across five seasons, yield advantage of the BT maize of 52%. What does it mean? If Kimberly, for example, is a farmer, and I am a farmer, and she is a progressive farmer, and I said, no, I want to remain. I don't want GM. I buy the non-GM version. She buys the GM version. If I have a hundred bags, she is going to get a hundred and fifty-two bags. That is the benefit. My own part would have been lost to the stem stock borer. Hers would have been protected because of the technology. That is the difference it makes. But you ask me, why are these technology not being made to the farmers? That is the question for discussion. So this is what it looks like. You can see this crop. This has no BT in it. This has BT, how green it is. I quickly move. Then the ultimate product we have is this, that combines stack product that has combined BT and DT, the CSP gene. We have used this shield, triple shield, for farmers to be able to distinguish it. And we started trials on this just last year in the, the countries. And we noticed something. Because they are stuck, the requirement is, if they are stuck, should they, will they still remain as efficacious as when they are single? So we carried out this trial. We did not infest this trial with the stock borer larvae. We only grew this trial to look at the efficacy of the drought trade. And interestingly, we found yield advantage of 17% due to the, uh, the drought trade that is incorporated in this stack. And one thing very interesting came. Like I said, stock borrowers were not, not there. They didn't see, but they saw some worms. These guys saw some worms in there, which they didn't understand what the worm was. If you can look, maybe those who are there can look at it. You see a difference. I can't seem to see the difference here. But they saw that the stock products had less worm. They rated this variety, this crop on the field on a scale of one to nine. One being very clean, nine being highly susceptible. The material that had the BT and DT were rating three. What does that imply? That there is some protection. But this fall army one we have read in the papers, even here in the US, that is devastating maize. But we have a partial solution. Why are our farmers not getting access to this technology? It's all boiled down to regulation and political way. So let me go in and say what lessons have we learned. The lessons we have learned from the Wema project is that it's important to, be, to comply with the regulations. It's also important to have homegrown product, compelling product, as key to promoting biotech. Because of the product the Ethiopia saw of WEMA in other countries, they said, look, we want to be part of WEMA. Malawi has also written, they want to be part of WEMA. Nigeria, some states have written, but we say, look, go through the federal government. Now, biotech crops, 
requires patience, it requires perseverance, it requires staying focused and close collaboration among all the partners. A good example is, or good examples are Tanzania and Mozambique. But in all of that, you may have the politi- you may have the regulation, you may have compelling product. If you don't have political will, we can make progress in Africa. So quickly, uh, what is the way forward? We still need more high-level engagement at the level of AU, EU in particular, because I show you that map. There's a correlation between what is happening in, in Africa and what is happening in Europe. Let's address that. African countries that are willing to adopt biotech should be supported to have the national regulation in the national regulatory framework or biosafety framework in place. There should also be further enhancement of skills with focus on risk assessment, just safety and economic benefit. We also say that there is need to support R&D in deploying uh, developing and deploying homegrown. So our take-home message, in conclusion, is that biotech crop is are the most rapidly adopted technologies worldwide, crop crop-based technology worldwide, and they have a great potential for agricultural transformation and to distinctively drive African green revolution. There can't be African green revolution without embracing all the technologies we have and putting them as a basket of options for our farmers. Africa also needs rigorous enabling environment that will allow GM to be taken up to market. But, but let the farmer be the judge. What has happened is that we, the scientists, we, the policymakers, are the judge. We don't even allow the farmers to have access to the technology to make their choice. In conclusion, use of PPP, participatory public-private partnership, can be a model for promoting biotech in Africa if there is political will. Thank you. told you he was passionate, right? I learned a few things. Um, Our other panelists can go ahead and join us up on the stage. You can go ahead and join us. There's stairs on this side if you want to come up. So even though I have, a, I have a lot of questions for you, Sylvester, but I'm going to save a few of them because I, I would like to actually go ahead and, and get some remarks from uh, Modesta Abugu, who's from Nigeria, from the Open Forum on Agricultural Biotechnology. One of the things that struck me about her bio is, is how many um, awareness campaigns she's worked on. You know, we, we know that there's um, a lot from the other side in terms of on social media and how people um, project of, of their theories on this. And I find that really fascinating about some of the things that you've worked on. But you're, of course, also a scientist. And I, and I would love for you to share with us a little bit specifically of what's happening right now in Nigeria in terms of biotech. Certainly the laws we learned a lot from Sylvester in, real, in regards to how regulation much, makes such a big difference. And talk about the role that science plays in policymaking and advocacy. Thank you, Kimberly. Good morning, everyone. I'm very excited to be here to talk to, to share with you what is going on in the biotech environment in Nigeria. So I want to run down a brief uh, history of how it all started. 
Uh, we've been having pockets of biotech activities in different research institutes until the federal government established a national biotech uh, policy that formed the National Biotechnology Development Agency. So since then, there have been so many research um, trials going on. Um, in 2001, that agency was set up, and they started micropropagation programs, tissue culture, establishing biotech uh, centers, where they are trying to res uh, conserve the Nigerian bioresources. And confined field trials started on certain crops, BT cowpea for one, uh, BT um, Africa biofortified sorghum and cassava. Um, Towards that period, OFAB Nigeria was formed. OFAB is uh, Open Forum on Agricultural Biotechnology. is an awareness creation uh, platform that was founded by the African Agricultural Technology Foundation. That is where Dr. Sylvester works. So we were set up to serve as a, a bridge, a link between the public and the scientists. Whatever the scientists are doing in the lab, we try to communicate to the public to explain the stages and, of course, to correct so many misconceptions that people have about this uh, technology. So in 2015, OFAB uh, helped to facilitate the passage of the biosafety bill, and in 2015 it was passed into law and the National Biosafety Management Agency was set up. So they have uh, granted three approvals for BT cotton, like uh, Dr. Sylvester mentioned, for maize, and um, the other ones that are already ongoing. So we have a lot of um, hope come, come 2018 that um, we are going to get at least two crops commercialized, and that's BT cotton and BT cowpea. So the BT cotton is at the environmental release stage. They're, they, they are testing for its efficacy in different en environments in Nigeria. The BT cowpea also is at the multi-locational trial stage. So the role that science plays in decision-making, of course, it's evidence here that um, awareness advocacy has played a very important role in getting people to know more about this technology and what it seeks to offer. So, but then it does not rule out the fact that people have so many concerns about its potentials. People are worried about uh, trade issues, multinationals. People are worried about consumer choice labeling. People are worried about enslaving farmers. People are worried most especially about health if those crops are safe. So part of what we do is to try to communicate using scientific facts and data. And the, the, the role that this communication is playing already, the impact is being, is being felt already by um, our policymakers. Although we have not gotten to where we ought to be, but then there is a lot of progress being made we are looking forward to a situation whereby in 2018, two crops will be released for farmers. And to talk about what farmers think about this product, farmers are really very hopeful. They know that, I mean, take for example the Maruka problem, the Maruka insects that affect cowpea. I talk very much about this Maruka, about cowpea and Maruka because I've had hands-on engagement with farmers who decried how badly Maruka treats them. It's like this is a disease on them, not just on their farm. So it's very, very discouraging when you see how much 
they go through to not just buy insecticides, but most times when they even buy those insecticides to spray, they do not get enough protection that they deserve from their farm. So, and um, the scientist that works on this uh, Maruka, his name is Professor Ishako, he will always tell us that um, before they resorted to biotech that they had already searched over 15,000 varieties of, mar of cowpea without finding anyone that is resistant to this insect using conventional method. So they resorted to biotechnology and so far progress has been made and farmers are hopeful that these crops will be um, released to them. So... Um, the, um, I, I also want to uh, talk a little bit on the role that we have to play. I would talk about youth because I'm a, I'm a youth, I would say. So, <laughs> um, youth, we have a very active role to play in this process because we need to continue to engage our policymakers Youths happen to be very strong advocates. They can be uh, activists. If if they get passionate about something, they can get you to do what they want you to do. So by getting, uh, they can play a very big role in information dissemination. The social media is where I live mostly because that is the role I play in OFAB. Um, they can help us promote as much as positive information on the benefits of this technology. It can get overwhelming most times because negative information seems to overrule the positive facts that are out there. But then we need to always keep engaging with um, people online and also offline. So we, the youth can also play a role in enhancing adoption and ad adaptability by serving as advisory and extension service agents. And also, um, there are so many youths who are involved in agribusiness. In Nigeria, for example, there are so many foundations that promote uh, youth involvement in agriculture. And in fact, before now, agriculture used to be this, uh, they, it has this kind of impression, it's something that is meant for the poor, it's something that is meant for the old ones. I mean, youth have no role to play. And most graduates you see, they will look for white scholar jobs, they don't go into agriculture. But with the past uh, federal government intervention to help revitalize um, agriculture, the role it to play in economic development, they have engaged several youths to write proposals and grow crops in their farms, and it's been playing out very well in Nigeria. So getting the youths to, I mean, promote this using their own trials is something that we see that can be very impactful. And also, finally, talking on the adoption we are facing a lot of challenges in terms of activism and, I mean, getting the real information out there. So the, I think what we need at the moment, the problem that we are facing in terms of adoption will be um, solved if we do more advocacy, if we create more awareness, if we engage so much more people as, as uh, possible. Just like uh, Dr. Sylvester asked, getting, there is a correlation between Africa and the EU. And this uh, status, the, the belief EU has, has gotten a long way into the minds of our policymakers that they will be like, okay, 
the Europe, they are not adopting this or they are against this. So why do you want us to adopt this? I mean, it's not called for. So because they have this skepticism about it, it's also affecting adoption in our own country. So we know that getting to bridge this gap can go a long way to facilitate biotech adoption in Nigeria. Thank you. Thank you, Modesta, for traveling this way and for continuing to be such a great advocate for this. We'll turn now to Ambassador Patricia Haslack, who has a fascinating career. I won't read her whole bio because you have it with you, but there's so many elements of why she's such a great person from the State Department to talk about this, from her being the first... um, forget the long title, Deputy Coordinator for Diplomacy for Feed the Future, but also your last three years in Ethiopia as the ambassador and now, you know, working in the Bureau of Economic and Business Affairs with Iraq, with conflict. She gets and understands this issue, I think, much more than, than most diplomats. So very much looking forward to your thoughts and particularly the role of what you saw in Ethiopia and the role the U.S. government can play in this. Well, it's great to be here, and I want to thank CSIS and Crop Life uh, for sponsoring today's event. And it's so great to see colleagues out in the audience that I worked with in, in Ethiopia, as well as with my former days at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. In fact, started my career with the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Very proud of that. And I most want to welcome my friends in Nigeria, as well as my former colleagues, uh, uh, say a salamno to, uh, to Addis Ababa out there. It is so great. Uh, to have you on the video uh, today. At the State Department, we like to say that economic policy is foreign policy. Many of the most serious global challenges we face are economic in nature. That's either because original problems stem from economic issues such as poverty, income equality, or lack of opportunity, or because those challenges have devastating economic ramifications such as drought. Globally, 795 million people are food insecure, with nearly 75% of poor people in developing countries living in rural areas. Growth in the agricultural sector has been found, on average, to be at least twice as effective in reducing poverty versus growth in other sectors. The fundamental importance of agriculture cannot be overstated. Previously, as U.S. Ambassador to Ethiopia, I witnessed the challenges that African farmers faced firsthand. In summer of 2016, uh, our team at the embassy, as well as with our colleagues from USAID, and I see some friends again, helped manage the delivery of U.S. food aid during the worst drought in 50 years. And this was a a climate uh, uh, change-induced drought which left an estimated close to 10 million people in Ethiopia as well as in southern Africa that were at risk of of famine and starvation. Improving food security and nutrition in the face of these challenges uh, requires new technologies and getting these technologies into the hands of farmers. As Julie Borlaug, the granddaughter of Nobel laureate Norman Borlaug, said, you cannot be anti-hunger and anti-technology in the fight to end global food insecurity. Innovation is central to meeting the needs of growing, a growing global population with limited natural resources. Innovation makes agriculture more productive and more efficient. Agricultural biotechnology has greatly improved crop efficiency and production in the United States and countries like Brazil and Argentina. On average, biotech crop adoption has increased crop yields by 22 percent, 
reduce chemical pesticide use by 37%, and increase farmer profits by 68%. I'd like to go back just for a minute on the chemical pesticide. People who are anti-technology, what, how do they think that these these crops get to market, the pesticides are much more dangerous to human health and to the environment than biotechnology. Biotechnology is not new. It's been uh, around for about 20 years. As a result, African scientists have the advantage of not starting from a baseline of zero, but rather can build off the last 20 years of research. New technologies like CRISPR give scientists precise tools to resolve difficult disease problems like the ones who were mentioned by Sylvester and Modesta in important staple crops indigenous to Africa. Corn was was the one that that you raised, I think, so passionately. In some diseases like uh, cassava mosaic virus or cassava brown uh, streak disease, there's no current conventional solution. Brown streak has devastated cassava, a primary source of calories for more than one-third of people living in sub-Saharan Africa. Biotechnology also has the advantage of speed over conventional breeding, adding in desirable traits like disease resistance that could otherwise take years to develop. And we know these approaches can work for African farmers. One, Kareem Tayore, a cotton farmer for Burkina Faso, can testify to the power of biotechnology. Using BT cotton engineered for pest resistance, uh, farmer Teori experiences nearly four times the yield and uses one-fourth the amount of pesticides. However, in order for biotechnology to be successful, farmers and politicians must be tr- open to trying innovative technologies. Science-based regulatory systems must be established so that new products and approaches can be elevated. Ultimately, because perception drives policy, we need accurate information on a global scale to reshape conversations about biotechnology, to focus on the benefit to farmers, but also to focus on the benefit to consumers. To be sure that farmers everywhere and consumers everywhere have the opportunity to benefit from these technologies. Um, I'm very impressed that you're working with youth because that's critically important, that we get the youth to understand the importance of, of these technologies. So thank you very much. Thank you. I especially liked your point of perception drives policies. Um, so we're going to move now to, to Hans Dreyer, who uh, came all the way from Rome. He represents the the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization. He has a PhD in plant protection, so he's a good person to add to our expert list. Um, and he's worked for many years in international development. And he understands um, Africa and how how we should look at the whole spectrum of biotechnology and the tools that it can create. So Hans, uh, talk to us a bit about the FBO perspective and how that might have shifted over the years in, in looking at biotechnology. Thank you, Kimberly, and uh, good morning, everybody, and good, mo- good afternoon, everybody, depending on where you are. So thanks again for the invitation to, to this event to, from CSIS. I very much appreciate also to represent FAO here at this important event. Um, let, me, let me first um, set a little bit the scene from an FAO perspective. You know that FAO has several strategic objectives, and the most important one is, of course, to help eliminate hunger and food insecurity all over the world, and also malnutrition. It is also FAO's mission to make agriculture, forestry, fisheries, including aquaculture, more sustainable and more productive, and that's perhaps most related to today's event. 
FAO is also striving to reduce rural poverty and to enable inclusive, efficient agricultural food systems. And finally, as has been mentioned before, we are constantly threatened and challenged by the crisis. So one strategic objective of FAO is also to increase the resilience of livelihoods to threats and crises, as has been mentioned now by, also by Sylvester, mentioning the full army warm invasion in Africa taking place in, in this very moment. So having, having uh, um, elaborated a little bit on these five strategic objectives of FAO, I would also like to set the frame a bit what FAO understands from biotechnology. <clears throat> because for FAO, biotechnology is not just biotechnology, it's biotechnologies, it's plural. Because <clears throat> we consider any technological application that uses biological systems, biological systems, including, of course, living organisms and derivatives thereof, to use, to make use of them, to make or to modify products for a specific, specific use, or to make or modify processes for a specific use. So we really have a, a broader approach to biotechnology, but of course, GMOs is part of it. Having said that, I would like to also deliberate a little bit on the role of FAO in, bio, in facilitating the dialogue of biotechnology. <clears throat> you may know that FAO recognizes and also appreciates the potential of GMOs, not just of biotechnology, but including GMOs, um, to increase the productivity in crop production, but also in livestock and forestry fisheries, but mainly in crop production as the potential is highest as we have heard before by previous speakers. FAO, in this respect, assists member countries <clears throat> to devise regulatory frameworks. It is really about policy advice and about institutional support. As an example, I can tell you that we have assisted Bangladesh, for example, and Paraguay or Sri Lanka in developing their national biotechnology policies and, and strategies. And we are open to assist on any other countries who is willing to engage in this. We are very happy to do that. Secondly, FAO also assists member countries in developing their capacities, not just about research, but also on uh, biotechnology-related capacities through technical cooperation and, all, and through training. As an example, I can say that we have done that in several countries in Africa, for example, in Uganda and in Kenya, but also in Malaysia, in Asia, or in Bolivia, in South America. This is an important function and important role of FAO. Thirdly, FAO provides access to high-quality, neutral, science-based, evidence-based information. And we are fostering that by publications with contributions from several stakeholders because for FAO it's important to have a balanced to transmit a balanced view to a problem. <clears throat> Finally, FAO offers also a neutral forum for dialogue, as I was mentioning at the very beginning of my, of my uh, talk here. <clears throat> and this has been done, for example, last year in February, where we held this international symposium on biotechnology. But also, we did that before. In 2010, we already started uh, with <clears throat> such a event uh, which has been conducted in Mexico 
in Guadalajara. It's about uh, international cooperation on agricultural biotechnology, more focused on developing countries at that time. Last year, we were really gathering all countries together because as we have the new SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, we are not just talking about developing countries, Africa, we're talking about developed countries as well. Because we have to seek standards, we have to also elaborate norms, as we did for pesticide use, for example. We try to develop norms, internationally agreed norms, which create legal security, which finally will also help triggering trade. Because if you do not have a legal security, you cannot endeavor, you cannot invest. And it's the researchers are left alone with their results, and the, poor, and the farmers are left alone with their problems. So FAO is trying to bridge new latest information and transfer it to the governments in the first instance, but we also work directly with farmers. So in the past years, FAO didn't change any position regarding biotechnology. We just look at it in a broader context as one tool in our rich toolbox to improve crop production, to improve sustainability in agricultural, fishery, forestry, but also in the food systems. So we have a more comprehensive approach, but we appreciate any technology, and as Ambassador Haslak was mentioning, we consider it as an innovation, as part of the innovation, and the innovation takes place. And there is a demand for innovation in Africa, particularly in Africa. I have worked four years in Africa, and I know that we, we really have big gaps, not just in deploying new varieties, but also in fostering the seed systems in Africa. This is a missing link that we need to strengthen, the bridge between the farmer and those who produce the new varieties. Because I may say, my colleagues may correct me from Africa, that the seed system, the seed sector, is very weak in Africa. We have a largely for informal seed sector, and the formal seed sector is very poorly developed. We have a lack of small and medium enterprises that care about multiplying seeds of improved varieties. This is also a gap. And I agree with you, uh, Sylvester, that policy, and particularly um, the commitment from political decision makers, is key in moving these technologies and benefiting and harnessing from them in the field. Because our final goal is to improve the livelihood of the farmers at the end of the day. And FAO focuses particularly on small-scale farmers, so on the food insecure part, not just in Africa, of course, in all uh, globally, but particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. In the interest of time, this is always hard for me to do and to reserve my own questions because I have lots of things I want to ask, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reserve. Um, I'm going to go to the audience here in D.C. first. Um, we already have some great questions coming in from Nigeria and Ethiopia, um, but those that are, that are watching Live Watch, we're going to continue to keep sending those in if you wish. But let's turn to the audience here first. Uh, raise your hand. We have some microphones that can come around. We'll start with Franklin right up here. Um, please state who you are and where you're coming from, and feel free to direct the questions to a particular person on the panel, if you so wish. Thank you. Thank you, Kimberly. Franklin Moore um, at NGO AfriCare. Um, I want to tie three things that were together to ask a question. 
Kimberly, in your opening, you talked about how national policies shape regional policies. And Sylvester talked a lot about compelling um, products. Uh, sorry. Um, you spoke of national policies affecting regional policies. Sylvester talked about compelling product. Ambassador Haslett talked about perception as a driver of policy. My question to the panel has to do with, does nation, do national policies affect sub-regional policies most, or do sub-regional policies affect national policies most? And here's why I ask this question. If you look at product development, and you look at seed systems, we find that the perception that farmers have of the value of biotechnology because they see it in fields that are adjacent to them has driven biotechnology across borders more probably than anything else. So if we look at the case of Brazil, biotech in Brazil developed because farmers saw Argentinians growing biotech maize and saw that it was better. If you travel to parts of the southern part of Zimbabwe, you will find farmers who have engaged in and created seed systems that bring biotech across the border from South Africa. When we look at that in terms of trade, we also recognize that if you look at regional trade, so we look at Nigeria in West Africa, their potential for trade is probably five or ten times the potential of trade between them and Europe. So what that subregion does can forward both perception, my belief is, can forward both perception and potentially forward the ability and the reason for farmers to make some judgments and for governments to follow them. So that's why I asked the question. Thank you. Can you just hand it across the aisle? Yeah, go ahead and stand up, introduce yourself, okay. and ask your question. Thank you very much. Uh, Peter Matlin with uh, Cornell University. Uh, Lots of Cornell. <laughs> uh, two questions for Sylvester. Uh, and again, congratulations on the presentation. I can't tell you how delighted I am with the progress AATF uh, is making. Um, you showed uh, a couple of maps. On one of the maps, it showed that only three countries had um, biosafety frameworks and regulations that were in place and being implemented, Burkina, Sudan, and, and South Africa. And then in the next map, you showed a much larger number of countries where biotech products were being commercialized. Not just CFTs, the confined field trials, but actually commercialized. So uh, my question is, how can they be commercialized if they don't have biosafety frameworks in place? Are they violating uh, local environmental uh, laws or what? If you could explain that. Second question, um, and it's related in part to, to the point that Franklin was making. 15 years ago, uh, the sub-regional organization, ASAREKA, and to some extent, CORAF as well, we're making an effort to develop harmonized biosafety frameworks across the regions. And it wasn't to impose a one-size-fits-all on all of their countries, 
but rather to leapfrog a bit and to enable countries to advance uh, somewhat faster in the evaluation of materials and, and commercialization, approval and commercialization. Um, in, the, in the maps that you showed, I didn't see a pattern of where that seemed to have taken off. Has that sub-regional organization effort uh, fizzled out, uh, or uh, has it laid the foundation for more rapid progress in those countries where the biosafety frameworks have not yet been fully approved? Thanks a lot. And again, congratulations on some wonderful work. Thank you so much. Let's go ahead and I'll turn to you first, Sylvester, and then we'll see if other panels want to make remarks okay. for, for... Thank you, Peter Martland. It's good to see you again. Um, the map I showed was the status in 2015, where only three dots, sorry, to use the word dots, <laughs> uh, South Africa, Burkina Faso, and Sudan. This was at 2015. Then I went further to say there are changes taken. There's hope. And so that was the map of what has happened in 2016, where we have now received approval for BT cotton, for commercialization of BT cotton in Nigeria, commercialization of BT cotton in Malawi, commercialization of BT maize from the Wema in, uh, in Kenya. But it's one thing to approve for commercialization. Then, that's the first phase. Then the varieties that have the trade that are adapted, you have to go through the National Performance Trial, which is the certification process. So that is the stage, or the stages they are in now of that of certification of those for the varieties to be able to get to the farmers. And that's why she's saying that hopefully next year in Nigeria, they will be able, because there are materials going through the certification process in these countries, which hopefully will be released. In Kenya, for example, since April 2016, we had 13 varieties, drought tego, drought teller, the teller, that have BT protection. They were to, supposed to go into the national performance trial. We're still waiting for a license. So you receive approval, but that is not sufficient. You have to also get the variety certified before it gets to the farmer. So that's why you see the difference. So I trace up to the map what it was in 2015. And between 2015 and now, changes have taken place. That's what I tried to explain. You mentioned about the harmonization of um, regulatory policies. Yes, this has been done, but they have not gone into utilization. You get them on paper. We started, for example, the seed system harmonization that exists. Wema said, look, we are going to move this thing from paper into actual utilization. So we tried it, and it's working. We are also using the, uh, the Comesa one now, for seed, seed harmonization, it, someone has to do something. These things are on paper, but you have to have someone to drive it. So we've written to Comesa, we have products, the conventional, that we want seed company to be able to sell regionally. Could we start that now? And they say, yes, it's possible. We want this because the thing is here, but it has not been utilized. So we are using that. We have applied, and we hope that with that application, when approved, the 
seed companies can sell products across the commercial countries. So in, it's there, but it's not utilized. It has, someone has to drive it, and we're hoping that we'll be able to drive it with the WEMA pro, uh, products. Any other panelists? Go ahead, Ambassador. Um, Franklin, thank you for your question. Um, I'd like to introduce, actually, there's another player here. And, and let's first of all separate cotton uh, from the food crops, because this is critically important. But the driver, it took us three years in, in Ethiopia. My, uh, the folks that did this are actually on the screen, and I'd like to uh, uh, shout out for them and all the hard work they did. What actually motivated uh, the government of Ethiopia wasn't international organizations. It was actually competition in the textile industry. And what they were hoping to do was to attract the textile industry to East Africa. And their competitors in this, by the way, are Kenya and Uganda. And so, in fact, it was the competition to try to get the textile sector to relocate to East Africa that then motivated the discussion for us, sort of the entryway, uh, to introduce uh, the BT cotton in, in order to emphasize that they were going to have a real competitive advantage if they had sort of the whole thing from cotton all the way up to assembling the garments. So this is very important that we remember sort of the context sometimes in what motivates and what, what drives. I think uh, my colleagues can probably talk more about the challenges when you enter into the food crop area. The only other thing that I'd like to say is the point that Hans made about setting up the seed systems, critically important. What we saw with the, the drought in Africa, and I think we're probably seeing it again this year with, with a continued drought but in slightly different countries, is the, the undeveloped seed uh, system and the fact that what people don't realize uh, in our world is that farmers, if their crop fails, they tend to eat their seeds, so then they're even in a worse situation. So. The, the linkages between what you eat and what uh, what you grow are much much closer uh, there. Thank you. Modesta, do you want to make some comments? Um, first of all, I'd like to um, acknowledge the Cornell people from Cornell here. I also am a Cornell alumni in quotes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, in 2015, I was part of the Cornell Alliance for Science Global Leadership course. I was part of the uh, inaugural cohort. So I would want to also shout out to the people, the watch parties in Abuja because there are some data that I'm about to quote with regards to what is obtainable in Nigerian food system and food security that they would, of course, agree with me. So um, to I'm going to use this to answer your question, Franklin, on regional policies affecting national policies. Um, to talk of what biotech seeks to offer for Nigeria, by 2050, we are going to be the third largest population of the world. And it's devastating enough that we cannot feed ourselves at this point, let alone by 2050, if we do not adopt most of these agricultural technologies. So um, we have the, co the products that we are working on or that our, sci our scientists are working on. We have, for those that are working on it, the watch parties, they are here listening. Um, the cowpea, it's targeted at increasing productivity, increasing yield. And that is because the Maruka, of course, has cost, like, it causes about 80% damage to the crop as it is. To add to it, farmers end up buying a lot of um, insecticides to control this thing, which, of course, is not good for their health. Just like Ambassador mentioned, how pesticides 
and insecticides have been even damaging instead of even helping. Of course, it's, it's contributing, it's helping, but then is it enough if we don't adopt these technologies? We have a situation whereby insecurity have caused a lot of problems to um, our agriculture, most especially in the northeastern part of Nigeria. We have a larger number of women and children in these parts who are malnourished because of vitamin A deficiencies and they are dependent on a particular food crop. Those um, people in this area consume a lot of sorghum. And that is, that is the idea behind the Africa Biofortified Sogum Project, where they are trying to enhance uh, sogum with additional levels of vitamin A, iron, and zinc. Because they feed on sogum day, I mean, morning, afternoon, and night. They serve the, the same sogum all day, and they get the same nutrients. So fortifying these crops, of course, can go a long way in helping curb uh, vitamin A deficiency and nutrition problems. We also have um, our cotton industry, at the moment, we cannot boast of our cotton production. Our industry has been comatose a long time. So the, the, the needs for this technology for us cannot even be overemphasized. And we are not just talking about this technology because we are at a state where we need all forms of agricultural technologies. We, we, have, we import a lot, yes, and this is the time that the, the, the governments of our country, they are looking forward to diversifying. We don't, they are trying to depend less on oil. So we, we, we need, we are the virgin state whereby all forms of technology is going to help a lot to uh, feed us in the future. So also talking about climate change and how much it's coming into some parts of Nigeria. Drought is beginning to affect the northern parts, uh, most especially. So the research that is ongoing on U.S. tries, nitrogen use efficiency, water efficiency, and to soil tolerance, we know, in addition to the WEMA project, we know can help a lot to help farmers um, adapt to drought issues. Um, the trials have gotten to a stage where um, the, um, the first harvest that was done, they experienced a relative success. Um, nitrogen thrived at zero, I mean, rice was able to germinate at zero nitrogen of uh, uh, application. And even uh, Minister of Agriculture will always say that one major problem that our farmers face is that they spend a lot on buying fertilizers. And in as much as they spend that much, they do not know how to apply it, and most times they apply the wrong ones, and then it does not really come out well at the end of it all. So trying to adapt to this technology is something that we see as going to be very uh, beneficial for us. So now to answer that regional policies, I want to use the EU as an example. Like I, I said earlier, we are faced in our communication experience uh, in OFAB, we, we happen to engage policymakers a lot and we ex, um, organize workshops, seminars, experts roundtable, where we exchange, where we dialogue, interact with policymakers and the general public trying to present the scientific facts on this technology. So, but the question that we, all, we always get not just from the activists, but the public who are watch parties of what is going on in the biotech industry is, why is it that almost 38 countries in the EU are banning this product? Why is it that these crops are being argued about acceptance in US or in other parts of the country? Why is it that Japan is banning? Why is it that these countries are banning? I mean, this brings me to that point where we see that these national policies actually are what's yeah 
direct our own regional policy. Because when we see that countries that are already developed are not adopting, or some are not adopting, then they'll be like, okay, we are not that developed to even adopt, so why should we adopt? So I think seriously that national policies affect regional policies using this Nigerian case study. Thank you. Do you want to make any other comments on, or you want to move on to live watch party questions? Okay, great. Um, so we have several questions from our folks in Nigeria and, and um, Ethiopia who are watching, and I'm going to pick one from each, but they kind of have the same theme, and that's around related specifically to how this affects a smallholder farmer, and I think that's a great way to kind of end it. I know it's why well, I do what I do, because I like to think about the smallholder farmer. So the question from Ethiopia, and I'm just going to pose it to the whole panel. We may go a few minutes over, and that's okay. So in Ethiopia, um, and this could be a question to anybody, but it's coming from Ethiopia, um, how do we make sure that this kind of technology remains affordable to, to smallholders? And what about seed copyright protections and about you know, the issue of making smallholders beholden to international seed companies? I think that's something we hear about a lot. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. You're smiling because you've heard this before. Um, and then a question from Nigeria is that from the start, do you recommend that smallholders should be allowed to grow GM crops, or is this really only for large-scale farmers that have the integrity and technology to do this at a big, bigger and commercial sale, scale? So why don't you start, Sylvester? Okay. Uh, um, that comes up every time we have a gathering like this. The issue of seed sovereignty is there. The issue of affordability is there. But the question I always ask is this. Do we think that our farmers are not having brain to think like the other farmers? Will a farmer, will a farmer go and buy seed, put, bring money from the pocket to buy seed if he does not see the benefit of that seed? The answer is no. Will a technology holder do business if there is no client to buy the seed? The answer is no. So if we see it from that perspective, that the technology holder is not going to sell it in a price that is not affordable, obviously there is no market for that technology holder, the farmer will not buy it, but if a farmer buys a technology, spends money, and sees the benefit of it, and makes profit out of it, that farmer is also going to keep that proceed to buy next. So when I sit down and I hear this, every time you have a great dough, this farmer will become a slave, and I ask myself, is this farmer having brain? Why is he going to become a slave? It's a win-win situation. I want to get out of poverty. I see a technology can, that can make a difference. I invest in buying the technology. I make profit. The next day, I keep out of my profit again to buy next year. It's a business that I'm making. And the guy who is selling to me is also making a business. So what are we talking about? The other question is still related, isn't it? It's still related. Yes, C system. The C system in Africa, we say yes, is not strong. But if you do not have products that will make it stronger, how will it become stronger? I can give you an example of the Wema project. For the very first time, seed companies 
We're using license to get product, to assess product. This was introduced from the project. And they kicked against it, but we say it is for your own good. Why is it for your own good? If you have a product, you have a license, and you are selling that product, and the product is selling, someone brings a fake product, and our product is branded, there's fake in the market, we will be able to trace where is it coming from. If you trace where it's coming from, then that helps to avoid adulteration. If it avoids adulteration, then you are improving the C system. So somewhere you have to start something. So let's not say we have to remain where we are. If our old technology, our old seed have been working, why are we still poor in Africa? I leave that as a pointed question. Like I should clap. <laughs> well stated. I, I'm just going to turn to the panelists and say, you, feel free if you want to comment on that or any other final concluding remarks. We do need to wrap up quickly. We'll start with Hans and then we'll come back down. Oh, okay, Modesto, go ahead. Okay, to answer the question from Nigeria, if uh, it's advisable to recommend smallholder farmers to grow GM or, or large-scale large farmers, I would say it's advisable that our government adopts new agricultural technologies, be it for smallholder farmers or large-scale farmers. And it's also very advisable, I would recommend that we integrate agribiotech into our national agricultural policies because the problem we are facing requires all hands to be on deck. It requires everybody, like all systems, the youths, it requires the smallholder farmers, the smallholder, the large-scale farmers, so that we can at least produce enough that we'll be able to feed us, and we import less as much as possible. So, um, are we concluding? You can conclude, yes. Okay. If you have final thoughts, Sharon. <laughs> Now's the time. <laughs> so, to make my final thoughts, I would want to thank all of you here working on um, developing Africa's agriculture, And I would also want to encourage you to do what you can because to state, I mean, I wouldn't want to say, yes, we are desperate. We are really in need of help. Our agricultural system in Nigeria, it's not encouraging at all. So I would want to encourage you and to thank you for the work you're doing and to keep asking that you help us access this technology for farmers. And we are doing what we can to promote and to create awareness in any way possible. Thank you. Thank you so much, Modesta. No. Thank you. I just want to stress again that we have to take an integrated approach. We cannot take isolated measures. And if you talk about GMO, GMO is just par, pars pro toto, part of the whole. Because we were talking now about seed systems, seed policy and so on. But we, we should talk about farming systems, right, and integrating it. So what is the purpose? Do we produce for the market or do we, do we rather go for self-sufficiency and so on? So I would really strongly opt to have an integrated approach. And for us, biotech innovation is really important to meet the challenges of the future. But we also have to look at systems. Huh? We talk about food systems. So let's not forget the consumer at the end of the day and the international trade that has been mentioned. So what we need is a high political dialogue on this issue, a frank and open high political dialogue. And we, FAO, is trying to facilitate this dialogue now with two regional meetings this year. 
The first one will be in Asia and the Pacific. It will take place early October in Malaysia. It is a follow-up of the international symposium that we held last February in Rome. And the second regional symposium will be in Africa, end of November, presumably, and most probably in Ethiopia. Oh, we are now contacting, we are now in contact with the government of Ethiopia, also with the African Union, and hopefully these events will contribute to really show the potential of, this, of these technologies, these technologies, these innovative technologies, right? Because we, look, we have to look to the future and try to finish this game of polarization. We need integration and not polarization. Next year, we will have two more regional conferences, one in South America. We don't know yet where this will be. And another, another one in the Near East and North African region. So four regional meetings on biotechnologies in order to stimulate this discussion because we cannot afford to stop and resign from this discussion. It's very old. We are... We have some drawbacks in communications, but you have to make we have to take lessons learned. And I would say, each threat is also a big chance. Talking about the fall army worm, talking about droughts. Yes, these are big challenges, but I think we have solutions, and we have to better really communicate with high-level policymakers on that. Thank you. Perfect. That was a perfect way to end it. And we're so thankful to FAO for being that facilitator to bring people together to have those regional conferences. Thank you all for coming, and let's give a big round of applause to our panelists. And thank you, Nigeria and Ethiopia, for joining us. We're very grateful. Have a great evening.